Welcome, friends, to another episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. Today we are going to be talking about... Uh, sorry, I don't have my studio set up yet, friends, but we are going to be talking about Parshat Bo and Haftarah Bo. So let us go ahead and begin with our Torah prayer, our prayer for studying Torah. <laughs> Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by your charges, by your commandments, and commands us to engage in Torah study. I almost said the prayer for the Talit there for a minute. Okay, so we are going to take a look at a parasha, parasha uh, quiz, and the quiz is from Chabad.org, and I love these because they challenge you and show you how much you know um, from the last time you read this portion. So, the first question is, let's see, let me reset it because I was looking at it earlier. Okay, so we're going to see if we can get 10 out of 10 questions, right? So, the first question for Parashat Bo is... What does bo mean? So bo, is it a noun, verb, or adjective? And what does it mean? So the options are you will be saved from within, or come to paro, or plagues will be placed upon you. So from within, come, or plagues. So I'm going to guess come, because lavo in Hebrew means to come. All right. So, number two, what happened to the locust after Moshe prayed that they be removed? Option one, a strong wind blew them into the sea. Option two, they became tame and the Egyptians were able to pickle and eat them. And option three, or answer C or three, they disappeared into thin air as if they had never been there at all. Now, what I just realized was, while you think about that, I did not tell you what Parsha what Parashat Bo, um, where you, you find it. So Parashat Bo is Exodus 10.1 through 13.16. And as you know, this year we've been covering the Haftarah. So the Haftarah is going to be from the book of... I just drew a blank. I just read it. Jeremiah 46. So Jeremiah 46, verses 13 through 28. So... We'll uh, go to that in a few minutes, but let's go back to the quiz. So, what do you think about the locusts? The answer, if you guessed A, a strong wind blew them into the sea, you are correct. All right. So, question number three. This is called a Rashi bonus. How long was the plague of darkness? How long was the plague of darkness? All right. So, option one, three days honoring Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. Excuse me. Seven days. Option or answer B. Darkening every day of the week for seven days. And answer C. Six days. Three of regular darkness and three of thick darkness. So since it's a Rashi bonus, I'm guessing that this might be not clearly laid out in scripture. So what I recall was it was three days of darkness, I thought. So I'm going to guess answer A. 
Oh, that is wrong. It's six days, three of regular darkness, and three of thick darkness. So you can read what Rashi has to say about that, and that should explain that answer. Okay, number four. What was the final tenth plague? A, cholera, affecting mostly children and elderly. B, Nile turned to blood. Or C, death of the firstborn. All right, so if you guessed A, cholera was not around or in the Bible by name. Uh, if you guessed B, well, that was the first plague, the Nile turned into blood. And it has to be C. So death of the firstborn. All right, number five. What was every family of Israel to do on the 10th of the month? A, take home a lamb or kid goat, an act of great defiance. B, sacrifice the Passover lamb to be eaten with bitter herbs and, or as one of my Israeli friends says, bitter herbs. They pronounce the H. It's funny. Bitter herbs. <laughs> and unleavened bread, which is matzah. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. The answer in LOC is ensure that their flocks were ready to walk into the desert. So the answer is A, take home a lamb or a kid goat, and which was an act of great defiance because the Egyptians venerated the animals. Uh, or they thought the sheep were an abomination. I can't remember which. I know they thought shepherds were an abomination. So, number six. How were the Passover people, I'm sorry, how were the people <laughs> to dress for the first Passover festival in history? A, in their traveling clothes. B, in the rich garments they had plundered from Paro. Or C, in sackcloth to mourn the Egyptian casualties. All right, the answer is A, in their traveling clothes. Number seven, what were the people to do with the blood of the Pesach offering? A, sprinkle it on the altars they had constructed. B, smear it on the door frames of their house. C, drink it, engaging in the Egyptian abomination for the last time. Well, they never drank blood, right? So it's definitely not C. And I don't know if they had altars. Uh, I don't remember that being in the Torah. So I'm going to say B, which is the correct answer. Smear it on the door frames of their homes. All right, three more. Eight, nine, ten. Eight. How many Israelites marched out of Egypt or Mitzrayim? A, 600,000 Israelite men and women, as well as countless mixed multitude, called in Hebrew the Erev Rav, uh, the mixed multitude. Uh, 600,000 adults, not counting young children or the infirmed. Or C, 600,000 adult males in addition to women and children. So I believe it was, oh, wow, this is really hard. I think it's A, so let's see. It is not a ah six hundred thousand adult adult males in addition to women and children. All right, so uh, number nine, may a proselyte partake of the Passover offering? Yes, no, or only if he is circumcised. So I'm going to guess the answer C, and that is correct. Only if the individual is circumcised. All right, and number ten. What should be done with every firstborn donkey? What should be done with every firstborn, every firstborn donkey? So A, it must be offered to God in the Holy Temple. Can't be that because you would never offer. Sorry, friends. Excuse me. You would never offer a donkey because it's not a clean animal. B, it is exchanged for a lamb. C, nothing. Only firstborn kosher animals are sacred. So, 
I'm going to guess B because that's what I remember from the Torah, and that is correct. So, History of Redeeming the Firstborn. So, if you want to hear more about that, History of Redeeming the Firstborn article on Chabad.org. Okay, so, fun quizzes. There are at least one every week. They pop up all the time. And they will teach you a lot. Okay, so, let's take a look at Yirmiyahu, chapter 46. So, like I said, the Torah portion is from Exodus 13. Uh, sorry, 10, 1 through 13, 16. And we're going to take a look here at the Haftarah and the connection between it and possibly some Rashi commentary. So uh, just to take a look at the first verse, Jeremiah chapter 46. The word that the Lord spoke to Yirmiyahu the prophet concerning the coming of Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babel, to smite the land of Egypt. So concerning the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, this was a second blow. That Nebuchadnezzar, says Rashi, laid Egypt waste in the 27th year of his reign. So as we learned in Seder Olam, chapter 26. So if you look at the, uh, the um, work called Seder Olam, it will discuss that. That's what Rashi is saying. All right. And let's see. So we'll, we might come back to Rashi, but I really wasn't prepared to go over the Rashi commentary today. Although, typically, we'll look at a few of his comments. Um, but, well, here's it. I like geographical stuff, right? Especially for those of us who are not as familiar with the geography of Israel. So, verse 18 says, As long as I live, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts, that as sure as Tabor is among the mountains, there is a Mount Tabor and a Mount Carmel, and Carmel is by the sea, it shall come about. So, Rashi says, just as it, is, as it is a true fact that Tabor is fast among the mountains and Mount Carmel is by the sea, so it is true that this thing shall come upon Egypt. I don't know what he means by Tabor is fast among the mountains. So that's a mystery to me. But, uh, all right. So let's take a look at, from the Etzheim commentary, from Parashat Bo, why this is the parashat, uh, the haftarah for the week. So, it goes like this. The haftarah is part of a series of prophecies against Egypt that begin with Jeremiah 46.2 that constitute the first group of Jeremiah's pronouncements against foreign nations collected in chapters 46 through 51. The anti-Egyptian prophecies in the haftarah, this one, 46 verse 13 through 26, vary in content and in style, but they're followed by two positive oracles about Israel in verses 27 and 28. Jeremiah's doom prophesies against Egypt, uh, prophes prophecies against Egypt are given a historical setting in 13 and 25 through 26, where, ne where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babel is identified as the Avenger. The parasha also presents a polarity of Egyptian doom and Israelite salvation. So we see that in Exodus 10. Through 13. So, following the proclamations of the Egyptian call to arms and ensuing flight and fear, we see in 46, 14 through 16, the assertive voice of the Lord proclaims doom and desolation and provides a counterpoint. This contrast is underscored by the mocking epithet for, quote, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who bragged about letting the hour go by, verse 17, in contradistinction, God 
the king, quote, whose name is Lord of Hosts, Adonai's vote, swears by his own being that the words of doom shall come to pass. Verse 18. The inevitability is reinforced by the repeated use of the Hebrew particle key. So that's kafyud, with the sense of for or certainly or surely. In these oracles, Adonai Tzvaot, the God of Israel, is the universal Lord of history, inflicting punishment on Egypt, her gods, and her kings. And you see that in verse 25. Total destruction will not be the outcome, however, because God's final word to the Egyptians prophesies their eventual restoration. Verse 26. The concluding oracles in 27 and 28 of the Haftarah show another spirit. The prophet repeatedly exhorts the Israelites to overcome fear and loss, though assurances that the Lord will deliver them from their land of captivity. So let me read that again. The prophet repeatedly uh, lifts up to Israel to overcome fear and loss through assurances and promises that he, the Lord, will deliver them from the land of their exile. I just changed the words to make it sound a little bit different, uh, just to bring some clarity. They will receive judgment in proper measure without unilateral doom. Our sense is here, one sense is here, a consolation for the dismayed. The promise of calm and quiet is not yet a reality. All right, so this small paragraph explains the relation to the Haftarah. The theme of Israelite servitude in Egypt in the Parashah is counterpoised with the promise of Egypt's destruction in the Haftarah. The plague of locusts described in the Parashah from Exodus 10, verses 3 through 20, is echoed in Yermiyahu's prophecy as a metaphor for the overwhelmingly numerous arms, arm, sorry, armies that will descend on Egypt in its hour of doom. Jeremiah 46.23 Nebuchadrezzar's coming in judgment against Paro, verse 13, responds to Moshe, Moshe's ancient coming in supplication before Paro, Exodus 10.1. God will wreak judgment on the gods of Egypt as he declared long ago, I will mete out punishments to all the gods of Egypt. Exodus 12, 12, which is what happens, and that literally is, uh, so th these are very connected, literally, you, you, he quotes, um, almost quotes, Jeremiah 46, 25, let's look at that, uh, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has said, I will inflict punishment on Ammon of No, and on Paro, and Egypt, her gods, and her kings, on Paro, and all who rely on him, so, you know, the Lord's just doing it again. He's just doing it again. And let's see, we can read some commentary here. So, we'll take a look. So, Jeremiah 46, 14, in Migdol Nofentach Penis. So, the Egyptian place names have been Hebraized, meaning um, turned into Hebrew. Migdol is a Semitic name, meaning tower. It was used for several frontier towns. In the eastern delta, Nof is a corruption of Moph, Siahoshia 9-6, or Memphis, Saqqara in the lower Nile. Tachpanis is derived from two words, meaning fortress of the Nubian. So that's pertaining to Jeremiah 46-14. And the commentary says in verse 16, same chapter 46, that this refers up, let us return to our people. Sounds familiar, right? Uh, let my people go. So this refers to the mercenaries or to the foreign traders who flee 
from Egypt. All right, and verse 17, the braggart who let the hour go by. The Hebrew phrase is difficult. The translation of braggart is sha'on, which literally means uproar or tumult, but is understood as a loudmouth. The targum, which was the Aramaic, Aramaic paraphrase of the scriptures, the Targum understands the term more literally, referring to Pharaoh as one who made a big tumult. The noun can also mean desolation or destruction. On this basis, Radak, R-A-D-A-K, which is an acronym for Rabbi, someone, some first name, last name. Uh, Radak dubbed Nebuchadrezzar the king of destruction. All right, and here's the commentary on Mount Tabor. So, as surely as Tabor, so shall this come to pass. This simile is puzzling. As rendered here, the analogy suggests that as surely as Tabor is among the nations, I'm sorry, among the mountains, the event will come to pass. Both Rashi and Radak say this. Alternatively, the verb will come refers to the advent of Nebuchadrezzar, i.e. he shall come, future tense. All right, so... The prophet Yirmiyahu calls Egypt a handsome heifer. This metaphor may have been chosen to chosen to allude to the Egyptian god, uh, the bull Ap Apis. And there's some other commentary here, and it's uh, somewhat geographical. So, not a whole lot of commentary because it is not a very long passage in the Etzchayim publication of the Humash with the Torah and commentary on the Haftarah. Highly recommend this. I think it's about $85 and it is so worth it. Uh, I've had to glue the binding on mine a couple times because it gets a lot of use, but so worth it. You go through it in about a year and you still don't get to really cover everything that is um, in it in the first year. Uh, it takes a while. So, um, now, here's an interesting comment about verse 22. It says, its voice, I want to go back to the context. So, also her princes who are in her midst are like fattened calves, for they too turn around and flee together. They do not hold their ground, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their visitation. So, in verse, let me back up one more verse. Egypt was a fair heifer. Destruction from the north is coming. Yes, it is coming. Egypt was in the south. Babylon was in the north. Babylon is modern-day Iraq, and Egypt is Egypt. So, also her princes, Egypt's princes who are in her midst, are like fattened calves, for they too turn around and flee together. They do not hold their ground, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their visitation. All right, so verse 22 says, Its voice shall go out like that of a snake, shall go like that of a snake, for they will march with an army and will come against her with axes as if they were hewers of wood. Kechot ve etzim. Now it's very interesting. That shows up in another parasha at the end of the year coming up to Rosh Hashanah. So I don't remember. Uh, it's talking about the strangers among the travelers, the non-Jews that travel and become part of Israel. And they're called hewers of wood and drawers of water. Now, that, so it's very interesting that that shows up here. Um, but anyway, they end up being very close to the altar because they chop wood for the altar and bring water for the altar. 
But anyway, so, uh, and the word in Hebrew is chotveh, like chotev is, I believe, to chop. So chotveh are choppers, etzim, like etz chaim. Etz is trees or wood, so chotveh etzim is choppers of wood. All right, so the commentary Rashi um, describes here about the snake is, its voice shall go like that of a snake. The snake comes to teach us about Egypt, but ends up ends by learning. For we learn from here that when the Holy One, blessed be He, Hakadosh Baruch Hu, said to the serpent, "You shall walk on your belly," the Lord severed His feet, and His voice went to the end of the world. So we learned in the thirty-two minutes of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Jose the Galilean. So it is said in in the Jewish the writing of the Jewish sages that the Nachash was even like a man and he walked upright so anyway there's a deeper sense of mystery and like a deeper sense of not mystery science and intelligence and biology with animals that walk upright uh, or beings that walk upright and they're very you know few there aren't there aren't a whole lot um so then that's about all i have as far as the commentary uh, there wasn't too much else here um, there was this whole thing about the 40 years and that, um, in verse 26 and 20, ah, okay, let me read this real quick. I will deliver them into the hands of those who seek their lives and into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, and into the hands of his servants. And after that, it will be inhabited again as in the days of old, says the Lord. So, um, there is a Rashi, I don't have it here with me, but... Rashi saw that there was encoded in the story, I think we actually covered it maybe last week, that there was a message in Joseph's retelling of the dream or understanding the dream, Pharaoh telling the dream to him a certain number of times that there were six groups of seven. So they're really, really supposed to be 42 years of famine. And they only got a few before Israel and all of the... The tribes, the whole, all the tribes of Israel and their kids showed up in Egypt. But anyway, not directly in scripture. So um, Rashi's saying at the end of 40 years, as Ezekiel stated in chapter 29, verse 1, or maybe it's 13, I can't tell the way this is typed. But anyway, very, very detailed that I'm not prepared to go into and didn't really look into that. But it says that there were righteous men who were in Egypt, the, the next verse, verse 28, who were exiled there against their will. So, Yirmiyahu, the prophet, says, You fear not, my servant Yaakov, says the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will chastise you justly, and I will not completely destroy you. And that is all. So, Fairly short parsha. Uh, I'd like to go to one last bit of commentary on this passage and take a look at the some rabbinic commentary on this parsha, the haftarah actually, not the parsha. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so. I love this rabbi, Yitzi Hurwitz. He actually has 
ALS, and I think he's going to talk about it in this article. It's such a powerful story. His wife gives an amazing testimony. I highly recommend it. You really need to go onto Chabad or YouTube and look for Dina, D-I-N-A, Hurwitz, H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, and um, wife of Rabbi Yitzi, short for Yitzhak, Y-I-T-Z-I, Hurwitz, H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, and just listen to her testimony. It is a fantastic story of love, of family, of de dedication, devotion, and just really true sacrifice and unconditional love. All right, so let me read this story. I, I'm sure Rabbi Yitzi would not mind, but um, these, these stories, he is an amazing writer, and he writes with his eyes um, because he can't move any of his body that I know of, and so they developed an electronic um, but some sort of apparatus, right, for um, him to still write by looking at a keyboard. So he wrote this article, most likely, um, without his hands, almost by thought. All right, so this is how it goes. Uh, this is on the Haftarah, Do Not Fear, I Am With You, is the title of the article. One time my wife Dina came into my room. This is Rabbi Yitzi. So Dina came into his room and noticed that he was smiling. She asked him why. He explained that growing up, he was always taught about being happy and having trust and belief in God, especially in times of darkness and difficulty. But he didn't know how he would react when put to the test. Now that the Lord has given him ALS, he has put Rabbi Yitzi in the darkest of places, and he feels that he is handling it well, and that makes him happy. So now he knows, and somehow knowing makes things easier. The Haftarah for Bo is Yirmiyahu's prophecy of the destruction of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar. You might have heard me call him Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadrezzar. For some reason, it's interchangeable in the Hebrew, and I don't know why. But I'll read you an aside real quick. Um, it says he died in 397 BCE, Babylonian king, during the reign of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, the two of the last ten kings of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar exiled to Babylon many, I mean, he exiled many people to Babylon that were politically powerful Jews and members of the royal family, including Daniel, uh, his colleagues Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. When the last Jewish monarch, Tzedakiah, or Zedekiah, revolted, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and exiled most of the remaining Jews. Towards the end of his life, he suffered a seven-year bout of insanity. And you see that in the book of Daniel. Okay, this is followed by a vision of hope and reassurance that the Jewish people will return to their homeland. The connection to our parasha is clear. Bo tells us of the destruction of Egypt by God through the final three plagues. Now, it's real interesting. The plagues are divided. I never thought about this. The plagues are only, they only show up in two parashot. Okay, so parasha from last week has seven, right? Seven days of the week. Seven rungs on the ladder of the tree of life that are in our realm, I believe. And then there are three that are in the Ein Sof, I believe it's called. The, uh, uh, basically, eternity. The, the, or uh, without end. The, the place where Hashem dwells. And the... Um, so anyway, you get seven and then three. Sorry, I'm sorry. Three and then seven. So this parasha has seven of the uh, 
I apologize, I got it flipped. It was seven and then three. So this parasha contains the final three plagues. And I believe it's, um, is it is it hail? Um, well, we obviously know the last one's death of the firstborn. Hail, darkness, and death of the firstborn. Anyway, I can't remember what number, number eight is. This is followed by the exodus from Egypt, which was the beginning of the travels that brought the Jewish people to the Holy Land, Israel. The Haftarah begins with a detailed description of the devastation of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar and his army, who would come from the north. Remember, I didn't say the, the parasha, I said the Haftarah. Okay, we're, now we're talking about the Haftarah. So vast, we switch gears. So vast will his army be that they will be more than a swarm of locusts. Interesting, right? That the plague of locusts was prophetic of something greater thousands of years in the future. Well, in this case, yeah, thou, um, probably a couple thousand years, maybe. Um, well, I don't know exactly. Thousand, fifteen hundred, maybe. And then into the future, like from now even, in the, um, uh, what, you know, a lot of people call the apocalyptic period or the apocalypse. But really we know it as the birth pangs of the Messiah, the tribulation period. So... And we do see that. That's probably going to be some sort of Russian or mixed nation invasion of millions of, of soldiers um, coming upon Israel. So it describes how the Egyptians would quiver out of fear and flee. Even Paro will be afraid. He will talk big, but when the time comes, he will waver. Egypt will be deserted for a time, and then it's dispersed will return. The Jewish people will see the Egyptians, excuse me, returning to their homeland and wonder when will they be returning to their homeland the prophecy continues with a reassurance that they too will return to their homeland Let's see do not fear my servant Yaakov do not be dismayed Israel for behold I will save you from far away and your descendants from the land of their captivity Yaakov shall return and be at rest and at ease and none shall make them afraid do not fear my servant Yaakov, because I am with you. In this verse, the Jewish people are referred to as Yaakov and Israel. Excuse me. It is also the custom of many to say or sing, Do not fear my servant Yaakov after the departure of Shabbat. What is the difference between Yaakov and Israel? Why is the custom to specifically use the name Yaakov after Shabbat? And finally, why is Yaakov called my servant? Great questions. The Talmud tells us that after Yaakov, I'm sorry, after God changed Abraham's name to Avra, Abraham's name to Abraham, and that's from Talmud uh, Brachot 13a, we are not permitted to call him Avram anymore. As the verse says, your name will no longer be called Avram. Therefore, and that's from Genesis 20, oh, sorry, Genesis 17.5. However, even though the verse says the same with regard to Yaakov, your name will no longer be called Yaakov, we are permitted to call him Yaakov because even after the name change, the Torah continues to use the name Yaakov. It goes back and forth. He's the only person whose name changes, and he still gets called the previous name, depending on his state of mind or maybe his faith, his bitachon, his spiritual stability. But the question remains, excuse me, friends, why is Yaakov still okay after God issued the new name of Israel? Oh man, could you imagine if like one of my favorite teachers, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, if he yawned in the middle of his podcast, I'm so embarrassed. All right, well, sorry friends, I didn't have time to make coffee and 
wanted to get into this uh, without probably as much preparation as I would like to do, but be that as it may. The difference between Yaakov and Israel is that the name Yaakov refers to us when we need to contend with the physical world and outsmart our evil inclination to in order to use the physical for godliness. Yaakov is called my servant because this work is pleasureless. All right, interesting. Yaakov is called my servant because this work is pleasureless, like the work of a servant. Like a servant, Yaakov doesn't feel a closeness to God. Indeed, the name Yaakov comes from the word ekev, heel, ayin, kof, vet, referring to the lower part of the soul, which can be concealed by the body in the physical world. Israel refers to us when we are above the physical. In this state, Israel is my firstborn son. As we feel close, I believe that's from Hosea, Hoshea, the book of Hoshea. Uh, as we feel close to God, and sorry, it doesn't reference where that's quoting. Instead of the evil inclination, the physical being, a hindrance to our service to God, it becomes a helper. The name Israel was given because you have struggled with angels and with men and you prevailed. That is from Genesis 20. Uh, 32. He has overcome the opposing angels and the scoffers to the point that they not only do, that not only do they not hurt, they actually help. This is because the name Israel is an anagram for Lirosh. So Lamed Yud Resh Aleph Sheen. So it changes the Sheen to a Sin or Sin to Sheen from Israel, which is usually a Sin, right? Israel. So he says it's a it's a mix a mix of letters for Lirosh, which means I have a head. The head refers to the higher part of the Neshama, the soul, which nothing has the power to conceal. So there's a bit more to this article. This is also the meaning of the verse from Parshat Balak, which we say on Rosh Hashanah. A sin was not observed in Yaakov. And toil was not seen in Israel. Okay, that is from Numbers 23-21. Yaakov doesn't have any sins because he has the ability to overcome his challenges through toil. Israel, on the other hand, doesn't have to toil because he's above all of it. In a general sense, this is the difference between a tzaddik, a righteous person, a tzaddik, and the average believer. The tzaddik is at the level of Israel. He has no struggle because he has totally changed his evil inclination into good. The average believer, however, is like Yaakov. He struggles, but he overcomes. On another level, we see that the average believer is a mix of both Yaakov and Israel. It is the difference between the weekdays and Shabbat. Interesting, we were just talking about seven versus the three plagues that are off by themselves. During the weekdays, when we must contend with his physical surroundings to overcome and transform them into holiness. He takes on the role of Yaakov. However, when Shabbat comes, even when the physical becomes holy, as we see that eating food and sleeping on Shabbat are holy acts, that is when he takes on the role of Israel. This is true for, tzad for tzadikim, or righteous people as well, but in a more subtle way. It's understood from the fact that he was still called Yaakov, even after he earned the name Israel. This is because even a perfectly righteous man must be Yaakov 
at times. Hmm, interesting. I don't know if I agree with that. Now we understand the custom to say, do not fear my servant Yaakov after Shabbat. Why Yaakov? Because we are coming from Shabbat when we are Israel, where everything is holy and there is no struggle. And entering the weekdays as Yaakov with darkness, struggles, and hardships. And that is scary. Why shouldn't we be afraid? God continues, because I am with you. That's his answer. This also means that Hashem specifically puts us in this situation and helps us accomplish what he wants most. That we turn this dark world into a place where he can reside openly. So when God says, when Hashem says, do not fear my servant Yaakov, he gives us the strength to preserve and succeed. All right, where is that from? That's from Likute Torah Balak, page 72b. All right, so in fact, there is really nothing to fear. We are certain that we will ultimately be victorious because at our core, we have a soul, which is a part of God. Just like a believer in Yeshua is, has become born again and your spirit is the spirit of Yeshua. I believe Peter specifically says that in his letter. And the spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, is the spirit of Yeshua. It's all one spirit. Flame is flame is flame. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Yeshua is the spirit of God. So just as no one can rule over God, no one has power over us. We see this from the last words of the Haftarah. I will not make an end of you and I will not wipe you out. So he could be talking to the reader. He could be talking to the, the tribes of Israel that are reading it, that it was being spoken to. Um, while others may be wiped out, we will always remain because we have an essential connection to God that can never be erased. As long as you're in God's will, you're not going to be erased. As long as you're a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua is the Messiah, you're not going to be erased. You'll be written in the Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life, the Book of Eternal Life. Uh, I don't know if that's three different books. I know there are books, plural, in heaven. And if you go to um, Talmudic sources and um, also Revelation and possibly some of Paul's writings, you'll see. Uh, and Moshe says, you know, may I be blotted out of your book if you're going to destroy all of Israel, then let me be blotted out of your book. And what's interesting is for the next chapter, you don't see his name. So he was actually taken out, but for a short time. Very interesting. Moshe is a very prolific figure, probably next to Yeshua. And in, in the New Testament, he's probably the most referred to figure. His name shows the most times, I believe, in the the Torah for sure and in the whole Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. So while others may be wiped out, we will always remain because we have an essential connection to God that can never be erased. On top of that, we have a guarantee that not one of us will be cast away. That's from Samuel to Samuel, Second Samuel fourteen fourteen. And that all of Israel will have a portion in the world to come. Let's see where that is. That is from the Mishnah. So not scripture, Mishnah Sanhedrin chapter eleven. But that is interesting. So, yeah, of course, that's ideal that all of Israel will have a portion in the world to come. But there are plenty of people, Israelis today, people in Israel today that aren't even Jewish. People that have Israeli citizenship can't even speak Hebrew. Nothing against those people. But if they're not believers in Yeshua, then their portion in the world to come is, is uncertain. Knowing this will fill us with joy. And that joy will help us succeed more quickly. 
knowing that we have a portion of the world to come. Truly, what's gonna when it, what's gonna give you what's gonna fill you with joy and help and and be eternal joy is knowing that Yeshua is the Messiah of the world and the Son of God. So and that he was resurrected. And we'll go to that in a second. One of my favorite verses, Romans 10, 8 through 10. I quote it all the time. May we merit to win our final victory, which will usher in the coming of Mashiach. I love that Chabad is obsessed with the coming of Mashiach, when it will be like Shabbat all the time. Yom Shekelo Shabbat. The day that is all Sabbath. May it happen soon. May it happen speedily. And may it happen in our day. So we never like to close this broadcast without asking you if you would like to make Yeshua the Lord and the Savior and deliverer of your life. And with that, I'll read Romans 10 and leave you with this final thought. But what does it say, Romans 10, 8 through 10? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That's from Deuteronomy, I believe, uh, 30. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that Hashem raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me read that again, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him, Hashem raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. All right, friends, God bless you. May you be blessed and encouraged, and I really do pray for this to be an edifying, enjoyable, and enlightening look at Parashat Bo and Haftarah for Bo this year, 5783. God bless you. Shalom.